Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 62. I'm Kip Clark. And I'm Caroline Borders. So today we're going to be talking about the second season of Black Mirror, which is from BBC4, and it's also on Netflix. We highly encourage that you watch the episodes before listening if you are interested, because there will be spoilers. We're going to be summarizing as well as discussing in detail some of the episodes, and we don't want you to miss out because they're really great and very insightful, very disturbing, as we've said about the first season, but smart and really hit society kind of right on the head. So we're first going to start with, I think we're just going to go in order, one, two, three this time. Last time we went backwards. We're just going to mix it up for you guys. So the first episode of this season is called Be Right Back. It starts where Martha and Ash are a couple who live in the countryside. Ash is more or less a social media addict who has a very strong presence online. The day after they move into this house in the countryside, Ash is killed returning their van that they've hired. Martha obviously has a funeral for her dead husband, and at that funeral, a friend of hers approaches her with an idea that is obviously we're a little bit down the road in the future and has an idea of how she can still communicate with Ash even while he's dead. Initially, Martha is opposed to this, but Sarah goes through with it anyway, despite her wishes, and she starts being able to communicate with Ash online. They've taken all his past history of online data, online conversations, and creates a persona or an avatar in the computer that basically has all his chat tendencies, and his online persona is born again. This also comes under the fact that Martha is pregnant and develops into something from not just online chatting, but talking on the phone. The company being used takes Ash's old conversations and videos and develops his voice so that she can communicate with him. Eventually, this develops again into a more expensive procedure where Martha buys a synthetic artificial body of Ash who walks around can talk like Ash, but also is fairly robotic and basically does whatever Martha asks him to. Apparently the sex is better than it used to be, but it doesn't feel like the real Ash. And after some time, Martha can't take it anymore and takes him to a cliff ledge, asks him to jump. He says, okay. And she gets more angry because she says Ash would never actually do it and he would fight for his life. And make some sarcastic comment or something. Exactly. So then we jump ahead a few years and we see Martha with her daughter and it's her daughter's birthday. We don't see Ash anywhere. And her daughter asks if she can take Ash some cake. And we go up to the attic where apparently we hear that her daughter is allowed to see Ash on the weekends and that's it. Otherwise, he lives up in the attic because he doesn't need food or anything. He's totally artificial and synthetic. We see Martha taking a deep breath before going upstairs and having cake with her rubber double of a husband, of a dead husband, and her daughter. Kind of crazy, but... Definitely. I like the term rubber double to (laughs) to describe what Ash's copy is like. And I also think sexuality was a very interesting part of the episode in that it is how many couples relate to one another and understand one another. Obviously, there's a crude way to talk about and approach sex, but in many ways, Martha's 
frustration with Ash in bed was largely a result of his lack of drive because he's synthetic. And although he has no end to his stamina and probably understands how to stimulate her better, it's not organic. And to me, that's a great metaphor for what we can enjoy in our relationships, not necessarily a romantic or sexual relationship, but to appreciate the flaws in relationships that sometimes people won't get everything you're saying and will make sarcastic remarks. But the rubber double of Ash was so bent on pleasing Martha because that was his programming and if we're going to give him agency it's not his fault. That's the issue that Martha wanted to be completely satisfied by this copy or that the commercial service that provided him didn't know how to make a fallible copy. It's an important lesson in why we need fallible things in our lives if for no other reason than because they are familiar. Maybe if we were all infallible, life would be amazing, but that's not the world we live in. And so I think it was an excellent episode to discuss and explore what it means to have flaws. And I really enjoyed it for that reason. Not only that, but it also did a great job, I thought, of exploring temptation. Once you have a loved one who dies, it is within your deepest, deepest desires to see that person again, to have that person back in your life. If it was possible for you to potentially have that person in your life again, living in your house as if they never died in the first place, would anyone not take that? I think it would be a real struggle for most people and a real temptation itself to not indulge yourself in that desire, even if it's just chatting online and then it develops into something much more, which this episode demonstrates as harmful in the long run. Certainly. And I think temptation was a really beautiful word choice because if you're watching that episode of Black Mirror or listening to this conversation on Be Right Back, you have to remember that Martha in grieving is not thinking rationally. And that's a huge part of the human experience that we don't often think as rationally as we might believe. And that in many cases, I believe people would absolutely imitate this behavior. And so my question to you, Caroline, is not about their relationship, but before you die, does any part of you think about preserving yourself digitally, your profiles, your identity online, pictures you've uploaded, or when the day does finally come that you're no longer with us, would you like those things to be deleted and erased? Whether you were reincarnated, let's say, how do you feel about your digital legacy? There's a lot of people that when they go to college, they delete all their old profile pictures or they delete all their delete. I say that with air quotes because you can't really delete anything online, but they try to delete their old selves. And I've always been a really strong believer in keeping all that because it's like a time capsule in a way, which now in the context of this episode sounds kind of interesting and kind of weird because I've never thought about what will happen to my online self once I die. However, I do know people that have died who keep their Facebooks and their Facebooks are just there and they sit there and people sometimes write notes like, oh, I was thinking of you today. And it's a really interesting but also creepy way of keeping that person alive and in a way I don't think I'd ever want myself to be an actual presence. I wouldn't want to be able to chat with someone online after I died because of my history has been put into a machine and it's spit out a version of myself that someone can talk to. That seems delusional to me, however comforting. So are you ready to move on to White Bear? Yes. Would you like to summarize this for us, please? Absolutely. And then I have questions for you. Please. So White Bear, to me, is a really fascinating episode. We begin in a bedroom. There's a woman named Victoria Skillane. She wakes up in a chair and can't recall anything about her life. 
it seems as though there's been a failed suicide attempt based on bandages and other details that we see. She's surrounded by images of a small girl. She assumes this is her daughter. And there's also photos of an unknown man. She sees an unusual symbol on the TV screens, which is very important and will come up later in the episode. And on the wall, there's a calendar and it's set to the month of October with all dates crossed up until the 18th. She then leaves the house, and here's where things get really bizarre. She's incredibly confused, distraught. Her hair is a mess. Her clothes are sort of haphazardly thrown on. And people emerge and start recording her on their phones. And she's asking for help and shouting at the people to stop recording her. And a man out of nowhere pulls up in a car with a shotgun and fires at Victoria. And she's absolutely terrified, obviously. She runs from the masked man, and she meets Jem and Damien, who are two people getting supplies at this convenience store. And the masked man kills Damien, who attempted to save Victoria and Jem. They then have to go on the run. Jem explains that the symbol we keep seeing everywhere denotes a transmitter called White Bear, whose signal turned most of the population into idiotic voyeurs recording everything on their smartphones, and that's all that they do. And I remember at this point in the episode, I was really intrigued by this because I felt, well, that's the world we live in in 2015. So many people record everything on their smartphones. Look at a concert video, go to a concert, you will see rectangular white screens lighting up and recording things because that's what we do. So the population has been turned into voyeurs, Victorian gem are not affected, but there are other unaffected humans called the hunters who, with the collapse of society, are able to act violent and sadistic without any repercussion. And Jem plans to destroy the signal's transmitter and needs the help of Victoria to get there. So they travel. They meet a man named Baxter who picks up Victoria and Jem in a van, offers them a ride away, and he drives them into a forest and they're all huddled around a campfire or something like that. And he holds them at gunpoint at some point. We learn that he betrayed them. And I had a suspicion that he would do this because at one point he ducks away behind the car and I thought, okay, he's leaving. That's a bit suspicious. So Jem escapes, but Victoria is tied to a tree and she's about to be tortured. Baxter pulls out a drill and all of these hunters emerge in the forest and it's a very, very ominous space. Jem returns and kills Baxter. And so now Victoria and Jem continue on to the transmitter. Victoria continues to have visions of past events. They reach the transmitter and a battle ensues and Victoria grabs a shotgun and aims it at one of the hunters and fires and confetti comes out and everything's very confusing for a minute and suddenly the scene shifts and walls turn away from this small corridor in which Victoria was trying to fend for herself and fire at this hunter and we see an audience and they're laughing and Victoria is strapped to a chair and it's explained that the girl Victoria assumed was her daughter from an earlier photograph was a six-year-old that she and her fiancé had actually kidnapped and killed, and Victoria had recorded the actions of her fiancé murdering this little girl on her phone. And so the white bear symbol was originally the victim's teddy bear. And so the man named Baxter is actually the announcer in this theme park, essentially, where everyone is welcome to come watch this woman, Victoria. The only rule is that you're not allowed to tell her what's going on. And she's a criminal who is punished daily in this twisted show and drugged so she forgets what happened the previous day. And the calendar in the room shows how many days she's been punished. And it's just this messed up system 
in which this person for doing a disgusting thing and recording it on a smartphone is being given a taste of her own medicine, for lack of a better phrase. And I remember sitting there and thinking that was a terrible thing to do, but what a cruel punishment to give to this woman. And I feel as though laws nowadays wouldn't allow for that. However, you can find smartphone video or pretty much video of anything if you look hard enough. And there's some really messed up things that happen, of course. In recent history in America, there have been smartphone videos of police brutality and really upsetting acts. But I've finished my summary of the episode. I'm sure I may have left out a few details, but Caroline, you said you had some questions. Well, the first question I really wanted to ask was why exactly you found this so horrific and disturbing and why it sounds like you're happy that this wouldn't actually happen today in the legal system, even though I would argue, however, I find it very horrific. It seems like a very logically just punishment, not just like humanitarian, but her punishment reflects her crime. That definitely makes sense. To me, it was horrific because I had theories before it was revealed that this was a theme park as to what the people were doing. And part of me thought, okay, some signal has turned these people into mindless zombies. In our world, many people without such a signal are still doing that. And I felt, okay, this woman needs help, but people are recording her instead. And there's a phenomenon that I'm forgetting right now in psychology where a tragic event happens and people simply watch and don't report it because they think, oh, the next person will take care of it. But in a world where people are recording so much on smartphone video, I feel as though those recording feel as though someone else is going to take care of the issue. And when the episode began, I sympathized with Victoria and felt she genuinely needed help and no one was helping her. And that really bothered me. As for the punishment, I agree with you. It is just in a certain way. It's poetic justice in a way. So, of course, this six-year-old girl was killed, and however painful, that's a brief experience, whereas Victoria could conceivably be tortured for the rest of her life and filmed and constantly be brought to realize this disgusting or perverse theater and then forced to forget it. And I'm not justifying murder in any way, and I'm also not justifying the punishment. I would just ask the audience that we're currently speaking to to consider how confusing that is and how complex because personally I don't know how I would feel. I don't believe in a death penalty but that's a conversation for another day. I do however think this is really torturous and perverse. I agree with you. This episode in a lot of ways spoke to this constant craving and this constant search people have for authenticity and like real pain, real suffering, the real human experience. And if you watch the episode this amusement park is popular. There are a lot of people. It's this voyeuristic society that is just augmented. I mean, Black Mirror in some ways is satirical. So instead of us just going to concerts and watching a concert through the lens of our camera phones, it's also human suffering elevated to the level that we are purely standbyers. We are purely audience members watching it and enjoying it. And the other disturbing aspect of this that I hadn't really thought much about until right now is that audience members at this amusement park are allowed to record as long as they don't interfere. And so this woman's torture is not only daily recurring and forgotten by her at the end of each day, you could go onto YouTube or its analog in Black Mirror and watch this woman from various angles experiencing legitimate social anxiety and confusion. Terror. And absolute terror and anguish. And that to me is really disturbing in that we earlier talked about what it means to preserve a life digitally. Here we're preserving the opposite of life, just absolute pain, 
no change. It's stagnation in the worst way. She's reliving the same day over and over again like a circus animal. And it's absolutely horrific. So my question for you would be, do you think there should be limitations in our world, forget Black Mirror for a moment, on what things can be taped, recorded, and saved? Do you think there should be laws about when certain things should be taken down or deleted? Obviously, YouTube does have certain limitations, and I'm sure video sites elsewhere do as well. What are your feelings on limitations when it comes to recorded video or even in the moment what live events or moments should be available to record. I might change your question. Please. Because it's not just that the act is being recorded, it is what that act is. It's torture, right? So what defines torture? Because I don't think torture can actually be publicly available. And I don't think torture should be able to be recorded because that is someone in their deepest, darkest, most terrified state of mind being coerced whatever. And so how would you define torture? I don't think those people taping would define that as torture. And that's where I think this episode becomes the most disturbing. Definitely. So to move on to the third and final episode, would you give a summary of the Waldo moment? Of course. So the Waldo moment, the third and final episode of this season, starts with a failed comedian named Jamie Salter, who performs the voice and movements of a blue cartoon bear named Waldo. And this bear appears in a host of mediums as the episode goes on, often trying to interact in the actual political sphere of life and going around trying to provoke political candidates and then eventually getting on a late night political talk show. So his main target during the episode is one politician named Liam Monroe. He goes around provoking him, harassing him, and generally trying to publicly humiliate him. Eventually, Waldo becomes a political candidate himself and gains a lot of support and a lot of traction. During this time, Jamie, the comedian himself, meets Gwendolyn Harris, who is the by-elections labor candidate who he actually has some sort of belief in and winning even though she may have no chance at all. However, after instigating relationships with Gwendolyn, her campaign manager warns Gwendolyn to keep away from Jamie because he might taint her campaign. Eventually, Waldo and Jamie behind Waldo then appears on a late night talk show in which Liam and Gwendolyn are both residing and Waldo becomes more and more aggressive and profane in his responses and is really there just to get a rise out of them rather than actually make any good points in which Liam gets angry and calls him out and Jamie gets angry insults him, and leaves. He essentially quits and says Waldo will be no more. However, the manager and the owner of Waldo and the rights to Waldo says, this isn't hard to do. I'm going to take over and I'm going to make a lot of money because people love Waldo. And Jamie's like, he's not being used for the right reasons. And the last scene we really see is months later, we see Waldo in different parts of the world on different posters and different billboards. And it's kind of insinuating that Waldo has sort of been used for world mind control in a way, which is an interesting ending. And global politics. And Jamie in the final scene claims ownership of Waldo or protests something and policemen come out of nowhere. He's homeless and he's beaten for saying, oh, well, right. that's my character. And it's a very sad thing, but that was a great summary. Thank you, Kip. 
do you think something like Waldo could actually happen? I feel like Black Mirror is in a way foreshadowing a lot of things that could potentially happen. And do you think this would be a viable one? Yes, I definitely do. In fact, it's funny that you talk about foreshadowing. As we record this episode, there was a recent scandal in Britain with Prime Minister David Cameron being accused of having sexual relations with a pig's head, a decapitated pig's head, I believe. And writers of Black Mirror were contacted and they didn't offer many comments. But it's a rumor, but a very interesting one at that. I'll post some links in this episode description. In terms of Waldo, Again, at the time we're recording this, it may be released and things may have changed in the United States political sphere, but I would contend Donald Trump and other non-political candidates who are currently involved in the presidential election represent many things that Waldo represented at first. I would say Waldo gained in popularity not simply for being crude and humorous to some people, but for really flying in the face of traditional politics. And that's what a lot of people resonated with. And I think ultimately Waldo stuck around, as I fear many current candidates might stick around in our real world, simply because of entertainment. And people who are tired with politics will vote for someone who's entertaining, perhaps not understanding that, yes, you may be entertained for a full term, whether it's four years or fewer, but there are political, social, and economic actual repercussions for electing such a leader. That reminds me that earlier this summer, Huffington Post moved any coverage of Donald Trump away from the politics section and to the entertainment section. It's exactly what you're saying. And I do think there's validity in that. And Donald Trump, again, like many topics, something I'd like to talk about in a separate episode. But regarding Waldo, there's legitimacy behind the idea that people are tired of politics. I believe whether you're a genuine person or not, other people will be able to detect your authenticity. And I think that's what resonates with Waldo. He's crude, not very intelligent, and doesn't know the issues, but he comes off as authentically himself, even though he's a cartoon character. And politicians like Liam Monroe come across as very fake and artificial in so many ways. And that's the issue and something that I think is a positive criticism Black Mirror makes. We should have authentic people leading the countries and nations in which we live. And whether they're actual leaders or simply representatives, we should be able to trust those figures. And ultimately, that's what Waldo has that many other candidates don't, except for the woman with whom Jamie was involved, who he eventually betrays for ratings because his manager says, they're not laughing at it. You need to criticize her. And he does begrudgingly. And of course, Waldo skyrockets in the ratings, but very few candidates are genuine, not Liam, ultimately in many ways, not Waldo. You have to ask what real authenticity is or what it really means to be genuine, because I feel like in at least our current political sphere, there is this performance of authenticity and being genuine that every candidate is like, oh, I'm trying to make it seem like I'm one of you. And it is a show. It's absolutely a show. Maybe it's not entertainment, but it's still a performance regardless. Right. And the thing I would say about authenticity, although I'm no expert, is that if you're trying, you're not authentic. It's as simple as that in my mind. You simply are what you are. And hopefully you've crafted yourself into a kind person, an intelligent person, anything you value. But if you're trying to seem that way, people will detect that you are trying and putting in effort, and that's not what resonates. So Caroline, Waldo exists as a comedic commentator on what's going on in the political sphere, and that's how he eventually gains some popularity and, of course, becomes a candidate. He's in public on the side of a van and actively commentating on what Liam Monroe is doing in public, and they get into a debate. 
Comedy is often used in the U.S. with talk show hosts approaching candidates, interviewing them, but also mocking them behind the scenes and making a joke out of them. Do you think that comedy and politics have a logical relationship to one another? Do you wish politics were approached differently? And ultimately, do you think comedy is used to discuss politics because otherwise people would not have an interest in discussing politics? I don't think politics being incorporated into comedy is the reason why people can talk about politics now, but I think it is a really useful tool and a really effective tool because it makes politics and perhaps more hegemonic, I could say, or just deeply embedded modes of control that we may not be totally aware of that are just really embedded in the system. It's a system we live in. It's not like we are totally conscious of it all the time. I think comedy can often be a really useful tool in bringing that out. So inherently, it will be political because I think it's venturing away from just being solely used for the purpose of making people laugh because people laugh for stand-up comedians because they're picking up on something that may not have been noticed before, but is equally familiar and resonates. And I think it's effective and accessible. And as we close the episode, as always, what are some things you would like our audience to consider? I was thinking about this, and I think in terms of Black Mirror, you will want to watch it. It will shock you how aspects of it poke at you and reveal different things that you may never thought about in that way. And then you're like, wow, that could happen. Oh my God, look at where society's going. I would also like our audience to think about other TV shows that we may want to watch and talk about. If you have any suggestions for us, please let us know. We're college students. We like watching TV. So anything you would like us to talk about, we would be thrilled to do so. Definitely. That's a great idea. I'm going to touch briefly on all of the three episodes. With Be Right Back, I want people to think about their digital legacies and whether or not you'd like to be preserved or even, quote unquote, left alone after your time has come. Do you want those profiles to be left open? What are your thoughts on that? And when it comes to White Bear, how do you feel about the voyeurism that frankly is culturally accepted nowadays? Do you think people People should be allowed to record as many things as they do. And how do you feel about Victoria's punishment in the episode? And finally, regarding the Waldo moment, how do you feel about political candidates in the modern era? Do you think there are any that are genuine and trustworthy? And in the event that some of you would say yes, why do you think that? Have you met them in person? And also to our international listeners, I'd really like to know how you feel about political candidates beyond the U.S. Because frankly, I don't know of many. And I'd like to hear how politics operate in other countries so please let us know if you enjoyed this episode we would really appreciate a review on itunes it helps the show get discovered and if you email us the text of your review to stride and saunter at gmail.com you will be entered for a chance to win a 20 dollars amazon gift card you can also subscribe to the podcast on itunes or check it out on our website strideandsaunter.com and if you want to talk to us you can find us on facebook or twitter and of course email and we'd really love to hear what you all think so please let us know and as always thank you very much for listening and from thought to word and voice to ear this is kip clark signing off and this is caroline borders we'll see you next time